Caregivers, have you ever felt like nothing is going right? Well, cheer up and welcome to Dave, the Caregiver's Caregiver Radio Program, where you'll learn how to avoid that dreaded thing called caregiver burnout and how to survive the grieving process. Join Dave and his guests now as they share practice tips and tools that you can start using immediately to help get you through this day. Now, here's your caregiver host, Dave Nassani. Los Angeles and New York City, but not today because Adrian, my co-host, is feeling a little under the weather. But a big welcome to all my listeners out there in Radio Land. I'm Dave, the Caregiver's Caregiver at caregiverdave.com, along with not my lovely co-host, Adrian Gruberg, today. Uh, coming to you live and on demand 24-7 on 16 global audio and video platforms, iTunes, YouTube, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Vimeo, Stitcher, Blog Talk Radio, Mixcloud, Listen Notes, Blueberry, Player FM, Podcast.com, VIP Internet Radio, Facebook Live, HealthyLife.net, and our website, CaregiverDave.com. And we are proud to be voted number two best podcast out of the top six caregiver podcasts by Caring.com. And we have an exciting show planned for you today. And we just want to, I'm, I'm so used to having Adrian there. I was going to say, don't we, Adrian? <laughs> but she's not there. It's just like I'm feeling so uh, uncompleted, you know. She, We miss her when she's not here, and we hope that she uh, feels better. She gets these migraines from time to time, and it's just awful. I've never had a migraine, so I don't know, but I heard it's pretty bad. So we send our prayers and our loving energy to her. But before we get started, I want to take this moment and thank my last week's guest, therapy, therapist, get the marbles out of my mouth, Caregiver Brian Robinson, best-selling author of Chill, or hashtag Chill, actually. Brian Robinson is one of the most accomplished authors and psychotherapists of this generation. His insightful work has enlightened countless people throughout the years by providing a deeper understanding of issues practically everyone faces. And you can hear that interview and all our interviews, including this one, when we're done on Facebook Live and on all sorts of platforms, the ones I just mentioned, and on our membership website, caregiverdave.com. So, with that being said, I would say let's start with our guest today. Terry Novak is a business systems analyst and made a career in facilitating software development teams through the thousands of decisions needed to deliver products to market. She knows how to make decisions. She developed a unique framework that integrates both analysis and intuition, allowing decisions to come from a position of personal choice. Now, we can hack the same techniques used to manage uncertainty in digital product development and help us through our own choice-making challenges. The Decision Doctor is what she's called. is her second book, available in um, actually next month, and has a companion online course designed for any who would like to overcome doubt and improve the quality of their decisions. That's me. I'll raise my hand. Terry, welcome to the show. So excited to have you on. Hi, it's great to be here with you. Likewise. And why don't you take a minute or two and just, I like to ask my guests, introduce yourself. Uh, just tell us who is um, Terry Novak and why was she put on this earth? <laughs> Um, well, that's so interesting why I was put on this earth. Yeah. I think I think I was brought here um, 
just like everyone else was, to bring that special, um, unique quality into the mix that we're in that no one else can offer. <laughs> so it's kind of like the, um, you know, let your light shine thing. Yes. Uh, the, the stork brought you to let your light shine on us, and we're so grateful for that. So um, what is your caregiving story? Because caregiving has touched you, right? This isn't a foreign concept to you, yes? It has, yeah. So um, when I was about 13, my older brother was in a motorcycle accident. So oh it was one of those sudden tragic family moments. And um, he had brain damage. And oh. so we went through uh, dealing with the, the coma, the extended coma and the rehab and all that. My perspective, though, was mostly from a family member who was protected by my parents from being totally involved in the caregiving. Mm. So they had made an early decision that um, the best course for me as a young teenager was to do as many normal teenager things as I could. Well, how nice for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so my perspective was observing and being part of the family dynamics of um, actually a lot of caregivers in our family, my parents and our relatives who came in to help as well. Wow. So when did you graduate from uh, being on vacation to actually sharing in the caregiver responsibilities? And how old were you at that time when they made that decision? Sure. So they made that decision immediately. So I was a teenager. Okay. I went through, um, I think, I got this great training from my parents. They modeled to me an incredible amount of decision making. <laughs> They, um, and coordination, and um, without hesitation and with a lot of heart. And wow. so sometimes I look back, I'm like, how did I end up um, in the career path that I did? And it actually seems kind of a natural extension of what I had all around me in my life as I was growing up. Well, what did so, they do for a living? So my father is a contractor. He owned his own business. Oh, and my mother is a, lot a teacher. Of decisions there, yeah. Yeah, my mother's a teacher. So um, my mother gave up her pursuit of teaching to um, take care of uh, my brother and his rehab. So, wow. yeah. So, how is your brother doing? So, my brother died a few years ago. Oh. So, when you mention um, he lived to be over 50, which was an amazing, no one expected that to happen. Um, so my parents had an entire lifetime of raising, you know, taking care of him um, mm -hmm. and turning him into um, a person in society and helping him develop as much as he could. Wow. So um, when you say, when did your caregiving end, I think my parents' giving, caregiving ended when he died. Mm. And it was an interesting transition because that's kind of where a lot of my role started kicking in. How old were you when he died? I was 45. Wow. And they would never let you get involved in caregiving responsibilities with him, or later on they did? Um, they did not. I um, was encouraged wow. to socialize with him. 
right? So, yeah, very so we unusual, would... A very unusual yeah. strategy. Yeah. How did that would, work out for you? <laughs> are you glad actually, or are you not glad? Um, I have to admit, when I was uh, younger and in at, at my teenage years, right. I was not so glad then because it was difficult to um, kind of deal with the peer pressures involved when you're developing your own sense of yeah. self. And um, taking and him to uh, activities that I went to or participating in his activities seemed awkward, and I, I didn't quite know how to handle it all. But you were involved then. It, it sounded like uh, you were not involved. They, they had you do social things with him, right? They did. They did. Well, that's, they... that's a very big part of caregiving, actually. <laughs> yeah. You were yeah. the social aspect of it. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. So you were a caregiver from teenhood, believe it or not. I mean, is this a revelation to you? <laughs> kind of it is. I mean, wow. um, I know they were um, really protective, I w you know, because there were so many, like, rotations of duties, right? You okay, know, well, this um, makes more sense now because I couldn't yeah. understand why any parent would shield a child from a great opportunity to learn how to take care of others because, let's face it, um, our children are watching us. And however we, we handle our parents and our grandparents, guess what? When you end up that old, that's how they're going to handle you. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. so they're, they had you very involved in caregiving. Um, surprise, surprise. That uh, <laughs> you, were, you were just uh, the social director, like on a cruise ship for your brother, for you who was disabled. And that's a very, very important part of it because hopefully you made him feel more normal uh, less ostracized and so on. And uh, did he react well to your uh, intervention in, in that way? He did. I often got chastised because I would do a lot of typical sibling uh, teasing. Um, he was easy to trick into funny things. and, and um, <laughs> Chastised by him? By my parents, by oh. my mother mostly. You know, I could um, tease him about, for example, at the dinner table that um, – he could use his fork and his spoons upside down, stuff like that. And um, I would get in trouble for those kind of interactions. But I think he liked it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's I was going to say, you know, my wife had a stroke 22 years ago. And so I treat her normally. I kid around with her a lot. I tease her a lot. We act normal because that's what normal yeah. people do. And if all of a sudden you're on, you know, walking on eggshells, oh, I better not say a joke. Oh, yeah. I better not do that. I better not do that. Uh, he's not feeling normal. He feels abnormal. And so uh, maybe your parents didn't understand that aspect of it, but especially if he was, you know, going along with it and enjoyed the bantering and so on. Interesting. Yeah. So let's talk about the hardest lesson that you've learned about decision-making. Sure. So um, especially in my profession, I have uh, methodologies that I was taught through professional development, and um, they're highly monitored. You're judged on your professional performance on them. And um, what I think happened was I counted on this these structures and methodologies too tightly, and I forgot how important it is to use your intuition when you make uh, decisions going absolutely. forward. So I, I say I kind of got it trained right out of me. I got the intuition trained right <laughs> out of me. Is that common for people in your field? I think it is. 
Yeah, um, there's um, a lot of structured ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, to I work in software development, so there's um, a lot of mechanics, and it's easy to get kind of caught up in the methodology and the mechanics, and forget about the softer things. Not, yeah. not just to other people and the decisions and how the results of the products turn out, mm-hmm. but also to yourself. You know, when you make decisions and have to um, honor what's inside of you in your work every day. I would think it would make a person very predictable and possibly boring if they just stayed in that structure. I, I think of accountants and CPAs and engineers. These people aren't known for having fun or or being able to joke around with because they're just so focused, so anal. And you don't seem like that type. Is it is it common that most people in your field will discover that they need to use their gut more, or is it less common that they do and most of them are, are like the people I described? Yeah, I think the people who have discovered it on their own are mm-hmm. well on their way. They're kind of out of it and not dealing with it. Um, the people I'm interested in reaching out to are those who haven't discovered it on their own yet. Mm. And um, to remind uh, to remind us to look about the things in decision-making, I, I call it intuition, but I think it has some more tangible ways of thinking about it when you approach a problem. Yeah. And that would be things like, what do you need to accept? What acceptance is involved? Uh, that's that can have a very kind of step-by-step methodology to it, but it also has a very deep heart part to it, accepting. Same thing for trust. So when you start reaching out to people who are going to help you with solutions, you know, there are ways to gather information and evaluate uh, solution options. But in truth, what you have to do to be able to really move forward is, is invoke this inner quality of trust. Yeah. So, so these I, these are the kinds of things that I I have incorporated into my practices. Very wise of you. Uh, I just coincidentally happen to be, you know, editing my book, and I'm on a chapter talking about. I think the name of the chapter is um, "Is Your GPS Broken?" You know, and I talk about how when I am uh, making a Facebook Live video uh, in my car, you know, hands free, of course, I'm safe. But um, and I'm talking about this very thing because I have these these five minutes of Dave's hammock wisdom videos, and now I'm writing the book uh, with the same name. Um, I'm saying, gee, how ironic how I'm talking about our GPS, and while I'm doing this, my GPS just told me you missed your turn, <laughs> and so I says, wow, how often do we get distracted, <laughs> you know? by things and and we we seem to get a little mixed up because I talk about intuition and your gut and how uh, you know we really need to trust it and women in particular are very good at having that intuition my wife warned me about a business deal that I shouldn't have gone into but I assured her that I'm speaking to this guy and he's a professional he knows what he's talking about oh, what I wouldn't have given to listen to her intuition would have saved me a lot of money. <laughs> so you're absolutely yeah. right. One size does not uh, fit all in in this world, I think, in any industry, because there's always an exception to the rule, right? And if you're just caught in that, then sooner or later, you're going you're gonna to make a big mistake. It's going to be very costly. Yes? Right. And, it's, and you mentioned how uh, some people, some uh, people in 
analytical professions yeah. become uninteresting or yeah. um, hard to find less, a spouse less for those likely people, to be you know? social. <laughs> I, I think it goes beyond that too. I think uh, people who are um, practiced at listening to their intuition and applying it to decisions, business decisions, personal decisions, yeah. they recognize if you're not. And then their trust in your competency decreases. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, it has a professional impact too, besides just a personal one. Right. And I even call it that still small voice in our in your head, you know, or in your gut or in your heart, wherever you hear that voice. One time uh, I heard a voice. This is a talk that I talk about sometime. Uh, I had a stepbrother, and I was going sailing, and and I just happened to run into him coincidentally by accident. And I heard this voice say, invite him to go sailing with you. But instead, I heard my mouth say, hey, John, we should go sailing sometime, maybe next week. Yeah. And went sailing, had a great time, came back. I got a phone call from my father, and I says, hey, what's up? And there was silence on the other end of the line. And he finally said, John killed himself last night. Uh. No, I'm going to go sailing with him last week. I just saw him. And sometimes it can be disastrous if we don't listen to that still small voice. Some people call it the voice of God, you know, whatever it is. Sure. Uh, it, it's, you know, it separates us from the animals. We can think, we can be creative, we can make decisions. I mean, Donald Trump, love him or hate him, uh, some people just say his instincts are impeccable because look what he did. He became president of the United States when everybody yeah. says, are you crazy? 16 great candidates, we're going to choose him. But he did it. Somehow he did it. <laughs> he must have good instincts, would you say? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so what, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, another when you say some people call it God or whatever, yeah. I think, um, I like to think of it as making decisions that are joy-based. Uh-huh, so, I like that. So if, uh, if your decision is like um, kind of squelching your joy, <laughs> or what you find uh, really makes you feel alive, yeah. then um, that's when I think you might be like turning down the switch on your intuition. Wow! Yeah. So. so intuition naturally wants us to be joyful. That's a that's a great thought. <laughs> it if does. We're there's... in tune with the universe or with God. We're supposed to be living a joyful life, and we have all these gifts, right? Amazing. Yeah, yeah there's a, a Sanskrit word, booty. Say that again. Booty, B-U-D-D-H-I. Oh, booty. <laughs> booty. And it's about the ability to uh, discern what's around you, and mm-hmm. make judgments, and make decisions. And wow. so um, what they suggest is what is inside of you always wants what's right. And yeah. so when you understand what's truly right for you, then you're exercising, you know, and properly using the power of your intuition and booty. Wow. I This is a very important thing for entrepreneurs to have, uh, people in business, but it's also a very important thing for caregivers to have because they've got decisions to make uh, like every day, multiple times a day. My very first important decision, I blew it. Uh, when my wife was having a stroke and the paramedics came and said she's having a stroke and they asked me that one important question that I screwed up on, they, they said, where do you want to take her? And I didn't know. I says, oh, my gosh, uh, where would you take your wife if she was having a stroke? See, I, I surrendered my ability to make the most important decision of my life and her life to a couple of guys making, I don't know how much money they were making. They were paramedics. Right. They worked for the county. 
but they took her to the wrong hospital. They took her to the closest, smallest, rinky-dink, privately run hospital that didn't even have a CAT scan, as opposed to going a little further, maybe 10 minutes, to a big medical center where she would have been in great uh, care. And so because of that, she lost her speech, became paralyzed on the right side. So this this stuff can be deadly if you're not involved in it. I mean, really. Right. Well, um, one of the very important things in the practice of decision-making is um, putting your preferences and understandings about yourself and your current situation first. So, And you can do that at any time. You don't have to wait for a surprising event in your life or for the right time, you know, for a big decision. You can start thinking about um, what's important to you. Right. You know, what um, what your uh, preferences are for a particular problem. What are the issues around it? If it involves another person, just, like, talk with them ahead of time. Get to understand what they're thinking about it, the, situa- the situations around it. So, uh, yeah, being um, having a self-knowledge base is super important in making great decisions. Oh, my God, I tell caregivers that all the time. Put your oxygen mask on first. Take care of your needs or you cannot take care of your loved ones. And that's basically what you're saying. So how do I know if I'm a good decision maker or a bad decision maker? Is there like a litmus test? <laughs> well, actually, yes. <laughs> There's a little bit. grade myself. And this is from uh, actually watching people make decisions a lot. For one thing, uh, you want to be sure your decision is solving the problem you think it is. So um, it's shocking how many times when it comes to that big, okay, we're going to go forward, we're going to make this happen decision point, if you ask, what's the problem we're going for again <laughs> on this? How many people f- have forgotten it right. or we, we missed it? To do. Yeah. We're not like, we're not totally covering it. So I think one element of a good decision is it actually really addresses the problem fully that you've started out um, trying to solve for. Wow, what a great point. You know, this is a good place to take a break, so why don't we uh, take a couple of minute break. We'll be right back, don't go away. One Arm, One Leg, 100 Words, Overcoming Unbelievable Hardships is about Charlene, a stroke survivor. Back in 1996, Charlene was a healthy, normal, very active 52-year-old woman whose amazing talents resemble that of both a Martha Stewart and a Wonder Woman. But all that changed when she suffered a massive stroke that left her severely speech-impaired and paralyzed on the right side. Everyone who knows Charlene is thoroughly amazed at how she lives day by day, month by month, year by year, and with a smile on her face and hope in her heart that everything is going to be okay. Just hear what best-selling author Lynn Barrington has to say about it. If you think you have it bad, read this book. This is a beautiful, genuine story told from the heart. It's inspiring and easy to read. When you finish this book, you'll be able to look at your concerns in a new light. One Arm, One Leg, 100 Words, Overcoming Unbelievable Hardships. Available everywhere. And we're back with Terry Novak, The Decision Maker. Is that right? That's the name of the book? The book is Decision Doctor. Decision Doctor. I almost yeah. had it, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, the, the doctor is what's inside of you, right? 
Oh, that doesn't mean that you're a doctor. We're all <laughs> doctors, right? Yes, I guess we that's are. why I called you doctor. Yes, I we to are. Out why I called her a doctor? <laughs> 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 so, what can I do when I don't feel like there's much of a choice? You know, uh, so many times it's like, oh my gosh, this is my choice A and B. It's like, which is the the worst or the least evil of my choice? You know, many people feel that way during uh, an election. <laughs> How do we choose wisely? Some people just throw their choice or throw their decision, let somebody else do it like I you know, did. I should have asked questions. And I said, well, what are the pros and cons? Give us some advice. How do we make the right decision? Sure. So this is the, um, you know, the frying pan or the fire kind of stuff, right? The rock yeah. and the hard place. It's so common, all these, these dilemmas. Um, a lot of people, here, here's some traps. Uh, one is delegating your decision to somebody else. And it's interesting. Is that bad? Well, you had mentioned that, but it's not always bad. But it depends what the situation is and if the people who are making that decision for you are somehow having manipulative motivations. Yeah. So, so um, in my uh, example, maybe the paramedics were late for lunch and he says, let's get rid of this uh, person as quickly as possible and and you know you don't think about that but yeah it could have been i yeah. i you you never know you know that's you another know. case where you want to know you know have your have your baseline information available right <laughs> on that one um i was in a situation um where i was uh, a surgeon recommended i have heart surgery mm. and both my kids were babies you know, I had a baby and a toddler wow and i, I was like you know this is like not a good time for you know the full-on heart surgery. As if there thing. ever is a good time. <laughs> yeah, and and he was awesome. He did actually offer an option, which I appreciate that he did. He said, "Well, then, um, I'm going to have to put you on the heart lung transplant list." Wow. Right. So I'm like, "Wow, I actually have. This is a good time for heart surgery." <laughs> <laughs> So, so the he idea is it, he made you an offer you couldn't refuse. <laughs> that's right. So the idea there is know the impact of of your options. You know, so if he's the a impact, smart guy. Yeah, yeah. If the impact is, um, you know, uh, lesser or more for the other one, and usually it is, even if both the, both of the choices aren't great, usually the impact can help steer you in the direction of your choice. Yeah, and if he was a little less. Uh, tactful, he would say, I would call your cemetery and see if you can get a, a better deal on uh, pre-purchasing your plot. <laughs> <laughs> he almost did that. He said I had three good, he said I had three good years left, and that, that totally did it. <laughs> wow. Well, I'm glad. That, so you did have the surgery. I did. I did. And I'm completely healed. turned out fine. Uh -huh. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So... Let's talk more about the traps. Um, we want to avoid traps, don't we? Yes, yes. So um, a big uh, conversation that people have is around cognitive bias. Um, if those words don't ring a bell to you, yeah, it's... Yeah, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's when um, there's just ways that your brain thinks that kind of leads you down the rosy wrong path. And so um, it doesn't allow you to be objective about your choices. So one example is um, like bandwagon, right? You want to, like your peer, everyone's doing it, so yeah. you should do it, 
right? So tempting. It sounds so good, you know, and easy and delightful because everyone's doing it. They're jumping off the cliff, we've told (laughs) them. Yeah. Or another one um, we hear, uh, we see this a lot like in the vaccination um, topic, which is confirmation bias. So this is where you have an opinion. It's kind of preset and perhaps not well-informed. And then you can go find information that supports it. you like, see, this information supports it. That's why I'm going with that. Yeah, or global so, warming. Yeah, yeah. And so um, those are like, you can't help yourself from doing these, um, these ways of thinking. So what do you recommend for that? Right. <laughs> so one thing that helps you is to... Um, have a structure to go to, a simple structure. One, just acknowledge it. But the, the second part is do the thinking part, not the feeling part. Do the thinking part first. So if you have a framework and you're, you're looking for information, you want to avoid confirmation bias, go, okay, I'm looking for a good solid set of information. So I if want you're Googling to, something, you want to look for uh, opinions on both sides. The pros yes, and the cons. That's it. You want to be kind of there, out of you know. out of your friend group. Like don't yeah. do it on Facebook, okay? Or if you always watch Fox, <laughs> tune into CNN or vice versa. That's right. Yeah, you know, I like to use Twitter, you know, I I get Twitter like the whole spectrum of people. Yeah. And a lot of people I'm like, "Oh my gosh, that's so hard to listen to." I'm like, oh. <laughs> "Well, I'm so glad to know that that's out there." Yeah. So um, yeah, so getting like kind of a, a broad spectrum of information first. So this, of course, is right against your feeling part. You're like, Ugh, information, <laughs> I don't know if I want all that. Information overload. Right. So so you're thinking about your baseline preferences. You're getting the information. Now, this is what's kind of nice. You want to evaluate the information, one, by the source, right? Can you trust yes. it? Okay. But also, does it align to my, my self-knowledge baseline? Because you can kick a lot of stuff out just based on that. Right. And that helps you from just like waiting around in a ton of information. You can you can kind of say, you know, my values aren't reflected in this choice. Mm-hmm. I don't want to go with that. Or what my success, what is success for me, isn't reflected in that option. So I don't have to know any more about that. So you kind of can narrow um, after you've done this based on the alignment with your self-knowledge baseline. Then after you've done all that, like that's all like thinking, thinking stuff. Mm-hmm. You can go to the feeling stuff, right? Yeah. You, can, you can do, how do, what would it look like if I followed this path and how do I feel about it? Does it bring me joy? It's okay to make a decision based on your emotions. Some people say, don't make a decision based on your emotions. Is that right or wrong or only sometimes right or sometimes wrong? I... I think it's I think it's okay if you do your homework first, and if you're acknowledging um, every decision has an opportunity to create an outcome that's really good or really bad. So even if you do the best decision making practice ever, you can still have a bad outcome. Hmm. So yeah, I know, right? And if you do like a really terrible decision making practice, like you just Go with your first thing, and you could have a good outcome. It could work out just fine. And so some people are, are like risk. that, aren't they? Some people are more geared to, uh, you know, I heard in, in business training, it says, you know, analyze till you're paralyzed. You know, the person who just, 
has to look at 27 different models, and then they're just, oh, my gosh, you know, and then they ask everybody's opinion. And, and then there's the other person uh, who's just the opposite. You know, they'll say, yeah, I like that one. You know, or, or your wife sends you <laughs> to the supermarket for Tampax, and, my gosh, there's 37 <laughs> brands, yeah. 28 different types, and, I mean, how do you make a decision? Uh, some people say, um, how does it go? Uh uh, decide quickly, uh, change your mind. Uh, I forget how this goes. Uh, decide. <laughs> if you take a long time to decide and then uh, change your mind quickly versus uh, deciding quickly and taking a long time to change your mind, which one do you think is, is better? Deciding quickly and changing your mind slowly or deciding slowly and changing your mind quickly, you know, if you see yeah. you're on the wrong path? Go ahead. So that's a, that's I, an easy question, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it depends on the person deciding. So making choices and how to how to take in factors, how comfortable you are choosing, is a practice. I mean, so people who are very confident and practiced in decision making, they understand their patterns of how outcomes um, come about. They can decide faster. So. Um, for people who are just starting to become, you know, have some awareness mm -hmm. about uh, like a, a practice of decision making, it might take them a little longer until they have, you know, like a history. Like I, I encourage people to keep a journal, right? Yeah. Or every day you like put a sticky note on the fridge. I made this decision today and I'm really proud of it. And then you can, you can gain confidence and practice about how you made decisions and how they turned out. Mm. And so in that case, um, you'll become more adept at making quick decisions. So what I think some of the people who make quick decisions, they've done their homework. They've, they've practiced at it. They understand their self-knowledge baseline. They've maybe seen it before, the okay. same topic before many times. And they can just boom, no. So it's funny, you mentioned when you go to the store to pick out your wife's Tampax, right? <laughs> so this is a great, great opportunity tip to guys. Know your wife's preferences. You can narrow it down, right? Do they want the mm. all-natural kind, right? Because that, that selection is small. So be sure to ask, <laughs> be sure to ask that part. Wow. <laughs> yeah, no, no, if you're choosing for someone else, that's kind of a whole other art. You have to spend a lot of time understanding their preferences if they're able to communicate them to you. Yeah, well, you bring up a good point about having somebody else in the decision-making process, like a partner or a spouse. Now, all of a sudden, you know, there has to be a consensus, and I hate that because, you know, if I know what I want and my experience is such that, you know, I, f I think that they should recognize that I'm an expert in this area and I'll let them be an expert in their area, but it doesn't always work that way, does it? No. What should I expect from someone who I'm counting on to help me make decisions but seem to be letting me down? Right. So you should make it really clear that they're helping you and you're not delegating them to make the decision for you. So um, when someone, um, when you ask for help for a decision, be careful not to ask for them to take over the decision. And just make that clear. That That's good because then they'll be thinking, um, I'm going to get information as an advocate for the person who has to make the decision. Mm -hmm. And that kind of switches it around because as soon as you're advocating for someone who is on the line for making the decision, 
you automatically want to know their preferences. You want right. to know what's important to them. And <laughs> essential part, it's not necessarily what's important to you. And that's, that's hard. So I, I'll give you a business example. Um, and when you make products, uh, as an analyst, one of the things we really want to do is add value to our customer. So when we get a list of a lot of work to do, we'll put at the top things that add the most value to the customer. Well, I was working with the person who has to make the decision, which is what we work on, and as, as a product owner, and they were consistently never picking the things that have the most value. Finally, I, I like sat down with them. I'm like, what are you going for? Like, why are we consistently delivering low value, you know, doing low value work? I thought maybe he didn't understand it was low value, uh -huh. right? He's like, oh, no, no, I totally get it. He goes, but that's not my goal. My goal is I want my team to gain a lot of confidence and get a lot of things done successfully. So I'm cherry picking the easiest things mm. for the first quarter. And I only want the easy things. So his idea of success was deliver the easiest things to market, whether they had a lot of value or not, because what he wanted to do was grow his team. So That's, that was a, an example where I did not spend enough time in the beginning getting to understand his goals and be his advocate. Yeah, well, you brought up a good point. You know, we spoke about delegation before, the people who just, um, you know, making a decision is painful. And like I said before, you know, paralysis or analysis by paralysis. And I used to be the guy who used to ask everybody's opinion, especially when it came to, um, uh, you know, there's a difference between asking them, uh, you know, what kind of generator should I buy or what kind of bicycle should I buy. But when you start um, getting into subjective things like, uh, or more subjective things like, hey, um, what do you think would be a good title for my book? You know, here's like four <laughs> titles or here's four different book covers, you know, what? I don't even ask that anymore because you will get a different answer from, uh, every, you know, you got the, the visuals right. and the kinesthetics and the audios and uh, all you do is hurt people's feelings when you don't go with their decision. So you got to be real careful who you um, ask some advice from. And then those who just automatically delegate, it's dangerous, isn't it? It is. It's it's interesting. You mentioned women are really good at intuition, and they are. Um, I also think women are uh, sometimes socialized into delegating their decisions to others, perhaps really? their spouse or their boss. Yes, when they and shouldn't so, be. When they shouldn't be. That's right. Yeah. So um, because traditionally that's how their families worked, right. you know, in their family background or that's how the corporate structure was used to working. And so the women, I think, are prone to losing their voice and, and um, losing the opportunity to, to use their own <laughs> really great, right? Everybody has right. really great, actually, but their really great intuition and bring that forward to the decision-making and not delegate yeah. it. Some people are savers in the family. Some people are spenders. You know, it's probably a good idea to give the task of balancing the checkbook and controlling the money to the uh, saver and not the spender. Otherwise, you could go bankrupt. But uh, most families, I think, understand that. You know, you talk to a guy and you say, hey, do you balance? No, no, she's good with that. I let her do it. 
But not everybody is that smart or, uh, you know, there's the macho thing. Hey, I'm the man. Yeah. You know, That's right. God forbid that your wife uh, gets a job because, you know, we need more money. Uh, and then God forbid twice that she gets a job where she's making more money than you. That just does something to a man, doesn't it? I I think we're getting over it slowly, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, men definitely have a lot of um, nurturing to offer, not just, you know, um, yeah. providing. So. Well, I hope so. I mean, there's still some people in pockets who are still struggling, I guess. But uh, I think this is another good time for another break, so don't go away. We'll be right back again. Dave Nassani, the caregiver's caregiver, has just released his sixth book entitled It's My Life Too. Reclaim your caregiver sanity by learning when to say yes and when to say no. It was specifically written for caregivers who know they should be putting their needs first, but just don't know how. Dave is the sole caregiver to his wife, Charlene, since 1996. He knows firsthand what caregivers are going through, because he is one. And he now speaks all across the country, offering caregivers his incredible caregiver support package. Even the airlines tell us that in the event of an emergency, to put your oxygen mask on first, before you help your child with their mask. They know that those who don't heed their advice often black out, thus becoming unable to help either themselves or their child. And caregivers are exactly the same way. It's my life too. Reclaim your caregiver sanity by learning when to say yes and when to say no. We'll help caregivers who are neglecting their sleep, diet, and social life, and learn to put their needs first. Pick up your copy today or buy one for your special caregiver. On sale everywhere and at caregiverscaregiver.com. And we're back with our guest, Terry Novak, the decision doctor, and we're talking about decision-making and why it's hard for some people, why it's uh, easier, there's traps, all sorts of things about decisions, because we all have to make them, right? Who are we going to marry? Where are we going to work? Where are we going to go to school? Where are we going to send our kids? And, and just the decisions never stop. Um, and many people are fearful, freaking out on some decisions that they have to make because they are afraid that if they make the wrong decision, it can be disastrous. They could go into bankruptcy. They could, they could die. How do you cope with the fear of making a decision? Sure. So um, the fear is something <laughs> I recommend. Fear. Remember, fear stands for um, false... <laughs> Uh, expectations appearing real, right? Because ninety yeah, percent of the things yeah. we hear about never happen. I mean, I wasted so much time and energy in the beginning of my life just worrying about things that could happen, but weren't likely to happen. Yeah, I I think fear is actually super useful. Really? So yeah, um, the trick is kind of harnessing it. Mm. So um, I like to when I get that fearful like freak out, like I just, the, the head starts spinning kind of feeling. Yeah. I'm like, I just let it happen. I'm like, how long <laughs> am I going to let spinning happen? Like, I'm just going to freely spin, you know, just to kind of let it, wow. let it out. But I said, I set a time limit. So um, depending on the topic, limit? yeah, depending on the topic and, and who you are, you know, how long can I spin before I start throwing up <laughs> kind of thing, you know. Oh, spin, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, 24 hours, right? 
One hour, you know, oh. people say you, you get one tier and you're done. Well, I need a little more than that. I need, um, you know, maybe a weekend or maybe a, a day. But then that's done. So the kind of nice thing about that is I got like some phys- some of it physically out of me, you know, when mm-hmm. you, you do the, the fear dance and, <laughs> and the, you know, the, the yelling and whatever you need to do. But then you can look at it. I say, go back and look at that fear because it is telling you some super important information about what's really important to you. So, you know, that idea of finding your preferences and your yeah. self-knowledge baseline, there's some great self-knowledge in that. Take your top fear, what's going to go lo- wrong, and now that can become your number one success measure, right? Yeah. The thing that you, you want to work for um, or the thing that you have passion around, so it might even be the thing that brings you the most joy. Maybe you didn't even realize it, but you're so worried about losing it. You're like, oh, my gosh, that thing brings me a lot of joy. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do something about that. The other stuff is fears a little, you know, it's, it sometimes does that for you and it sometimes doesn't, right? Sometimes yeah. it's crazy talk. So I think if you practice being friends with your fear, You'll start recognizing what's the crazy talk and what's the useful stuff. And um, again, I think it just takes it takes kind of playing with it, giving yourself time and space to play with it. Being friends with your fear. I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> fear is the enemy, you know? Yeah, well, um, the when I explored this deeply um, was when my intuition woke me back up. Yeah, I had mentioned how I uh, I got the intuition trained out of me. I kind of mm-hmm. didn't even realize it. And um, I had a medical diagnosis, and it was uh, cervical dysplasia. And the doctor said, oh, yeah, we have a surgery for that. Just go, um, we just, you know, remove half the cervix, and you're done. You can sign up for it on your way out. Oh, I don't like right? the sound of that. I didn't either. And <laughs> The weird thing is, like, I'm a, I'm a good follower. Like, I do all the preventative care, and I, you know, I listen to professionals, and I could not make myself make that appointment. I practically ran out of the building, right? <laughs> and I'm like, what am I so afraid of? I'm crazy. Like, I've, I've done tons of different kinds of procedures. Why is this one, you know, the one that's triggering me? Yeah. The question is, do you do you fear the procedure more than you fear death and what, what that brings, you know? I have a granddaughter who at the time, she's 20 now, time she was like three or four, and she was a fish in the water. And she was, oh, Grandpa, I want to show you my new dive. And, and she wanted to do something backwards, a backwards flip or something crazy. And then she just stopped and she says, I can't, I'm afraid. And I says, well, it's okay to be afraid. Just do it afraid. And she looked at me like, Oh, okay, and she just did it. And I patted myself on the back. What great grandpa the advice that you gave your granda. Just do it afraid. What's the big deal? And so is that kind of what you're saying? Um, Make fear your friend? or Well, kind of. Um, in my case, I didn't just want to do it afraid. I had a feeling um, inside that was preventing me from going forward with the advice. And I, I wanted to give myself the time to explore it and why I, I didn't want to follow it. And so by kind of investigating, you know, doing some self-reflection about why am I afraid of this, 
it helped surface some things that were important to me and also some questions about, uh, in this case, you know, medical procedures. Doctors have specialties and they have habits just like everybody does. Yeah. They have limits to what they can offer. And so I'm like, is this one of those like limit times when I need to explore it more and not just, like you said, not just like do it afraid, but actually take some time to explore yeah. it. The second opinion uh, motto. Yeah, yeah. So right. um, then I could find my baseline preferences about what was important to me mm -hmm. so that um, I could evaluate any additional information that I went and got. And that, was the, that was the important awakening. I'm like, hey, listen to that feeling in my gut. Good job, Terry. You know, <laughs> that's, that's intuition. I, I can do this. <laughs> okay, now what if you do all your homework, you do everything you suggested, you make the decision, and it turns out to be the worst decision of your life, like a decision that I made, not knowing that 2008 was what it was, and I almost lost my house, I almost lost my business, I almost went bankrupt. Uh, good word there is almost, because it didn't happen. Yeah. And so what do you do when, when you, you did everything right, you took all the precautions, and you still made the wrong decision? How do you recover from a wrong decision? Sure. So when you're getting ready to work through and take action, because that's what this is all about, right? You make a decision so you can take a bunch of actions to bring about a change for yourself. So an important thing is to have the simplest, and, and you probably uh, did this uh, either explicitly or just just kind of um, self, you know, subconsciously, kind of like milestones and measurements. Am I on track to my success place as I'm going along? And um, if you consciously identify those places, you can find where you're going off track. Sooner, of course, is always better than later, right? So if you if you sense you're going off track, you can change your mind, <laughs> right? Oh, it's change okay your to change your mind. That's good. Oh my gosh, yes. That um, goes to you know, do we take a long time to change our mind, or we do we, do we change our mind quickly, as opposed to the decision making process? Right. And and that's where, like I said, this the structure can help you. So if you've pre-thought about what your success looks like and about how you might measure it along the way on your path to getting there, you can detect when you're going astray and you can change change your plan for how to get to where you want to go. And it mm -hmm. might be significantly different. And it's it's interesting you mentioned time quite a bit. I think timing is something it kind of has its own character. So that's the first thing I think to change, you know, when, you, when you're course correcting. It's like, wow, I thought this would take five months. Oh my gosh, no, it's taking two years. <laughs> that's know. okay. You know, usually that's okay. Can you factor that in? It's way better than failing, yeah. right? Or having an outcome you don't want. So um, yeah, I recommend uh, putting yourself in a position to do course corrections as early as yeah. you can and the permission to change your mind. Yeah, and I'm a sailor, so I know about course corrections because as we sail from Marina del Rey to Catalina Island, if you're two degrees off course, you're going to miss the island, and the next land you're going to hit is Antarctica. You know, <laughs> but, yeah. but after, and that happened to us one time, it takes eight hours to sail there, and we were nine and a half hours into the sail, and we couldn't see anything. And yeah. that's when you start thinking, Hmm, did we miss it? Because it's not here. It should be here. But actually, a fog bank immediately lifted, and all of a sudden, there it was right in front of us. We couldn't see it. Uh, 
So yeah. the question I wanted to ask is, when do we know that we did actually make a mistake and it just doesn't uh, not look like we made a mistake, that, that maybe we need to just not change our mind too quickly? You know, we need to, like, make sure, because timing of changing your mind is just as important as the decision that we made. Some people, with their investment strategy, they'll buy a stock, and then, you know, the stock just goes down, and they say, oh, that was a mistake, and then they, they sell it, and then all of a sudden it goes up. You know, so timing is everything. How do we know if we really made a mistake or it just kind of looks like we made a mistake and we're really that close to the gold, you know, if we would have... Yeah just kept going. Yes. So um, I think having a really clear vision of what success looks like is helpful. Some people don't do that. So success goes beyond you reach the finish line. It goes to, I now I'm over the finish line. It's actually in my life. Now what do I have to do to own the result that I am going to get in the future in my life? Now the reason thinking about that is helpful is because you'll start thinking about doing things that you need to be successful that you didn't think about before. So there's there's two ways to look to look at it. One's the like super positive way. I got everything I wanted and now I'm living that. And here's how I do the care and feeding of that thing I have. Oh yeah, I need to remember to do this one more thing right now. Um, yeah. Then there's the ne the negative side of that, which is, okay, I got to the end. And I'm in, in the care and feeding phase, and everything's a disaster. It's like kind of my worst fears came true, right? Or everything flipped. What would it look like if everything was upside down? And when you think about that, you're like, I can prevent that if I do this thing now. And so then you can add that to your path, too, so you can prevent some of the things. So you, you can mitigate um, oh. and facilitate the ability to do good, meaningful course corrections. Yeah. Well, remember, we're talking to caregivers. What do you think is the most important thing as we wrap up? Got about five more minutes. Uh, something that they can take home with them. I mean, we're, we're talking real general and theoretical, but how do we bring it home for a caregiver who's got, you know, I mean, not only do they have to decide, is it time to change uh, my loved one's diaper or is it time to go to the emergency room, you know? Bring it home for them. Sure. So I always feel the most important thing to remember as you're working through decisions and the path that follows based on the decisions you made to incorporate um, activities of joy. So if there's Here's that no, word again, joy, yeah. If there's no room in your path to incorporate joy, it's it's maybe not the right decision mm -hmm. and, you, and it's time to, to change things up a little. The yeah. other part is is gratitude. So that is, this is a looking forward thing. So if you plan, if there is time in your plan as you move your path forward from making a decision, activities, like real physical things in your life that, ex, that express gratitude for getting the result you want, mm -hmm. then it, it, makes it, it makes it feel like you're already there. So... Um, that's Attitude I of gratitude. Say, yeah. 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 Well, that's awesome. Well, tell us about your book. Um, how do we get it? And when is it coming out? And how do we pre-order it and all that stuff? And how do we contact you? 
if we want yeah, you I'm to really help us excited. make good decisions? I'm, um, it's coming out the last week in June. So I'm just now updating my website to get all the information out and available on that. Mm -hmm. And that's at terrynovak.com. Um, also, if you go to decision-doctor.com, mm -hmm. it'll take you there. But you can just click the button for pre-order information. And um, it's going to happen real fast. After that, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's going to happen real fast. After that, there's going to be an online course that's um, targeted to start in October. Uh -huh. So, um, and this will closely follow some of the learnings in the book as well. So, and I give a chance to work with a small cohort of people hmm. and build a community to kind of help help each other through um, some yeah. target decisions and develop the practice of building your intuition and decision making skills. Yeah. And this is your second book. What was your first book about? Um, my first book is called Hypothesis, an HPV healing experiment. It has the same process in it. Mm -hmm. But in its kind of, um, you know, brand new uh, format, <laughs> and it's very specifically speaking to women who are facing the decisions around treating HPV. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to expand um, that to mostly just speak to the structure of the decision-making practice so that it could be applied to more people's uh, choice-making. Well, that's great. I appreciate you coming on the show, especially at the last minute, uh, the way it turned out. And uh, I want to thank everybody for tuning in. And again, our website is caregiverdave.com. And that's where you can hear this uh, show and uh, all the other shows that we've had on. And I just want to, again, thank our guest, Kim um, Terry Novak. I, I always want to say Kim Novak. It's an actress. <laughs> Any relation? <laughs> no. Okay. Well, thank you again. It's been a pleasure having you on the show, and I've I thank learned you. so much. And it's always a good thing when I learn something on on the show. So, have a nice day, and thank you, and bye bye. Thank you for listening to the Caregiver's Caregiver radio program with Dave Nassani.